On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving, at your desk, maybe at the gym, but you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach and see a rocket launch. Or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to Cricket Unfiltered, the News Corp Cricket Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Mensel, and in today's episode, I've got two cracking cricket journalists on the line. So later on in the podcast, I'm going to call Jared Kimber, who's been in the West Indies covering the England tour over there, and uh, he's going to report on England's diabolical collapse, getting all out for 77 and then being bowled out by a part-time off-spinner. And uh, we'll find out how England are tracking ahead of their Ashes preparation. So that's to come, Jared Kimber in the West Indies. But first, uh, let's get a full Big Bash update. I've got on the line Julian Linden from the Daily Telegraph, who's been covering uh, the Big Bash. So let's kick off with that. Joining me now on the line is a Big Bash reporter for the Daily Telegraph in Sydney, and it's his first time on the podcast, Julian Linden. Julian, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Hey, uh, good, thanks. Great to be here. It's great to have you on the show. Now, you've been you've been following the Big Bash around all summer, and we've come to the pointy end of the competition, and it's getting pretty interesting. What's surprising for me, though, is the teams that aren't in the race. So we've got the Perth Scorchers, the Adelaide Strikers and the Brisbane Heat all pretty much out already. And I thought the Scorchers and the Strikers might be good teams, but they've really struggled. Well, I think everyone thought they were going to be um, great teams this season. Of course, the Strikers won it last year and uh, the Scorchers have been the most consistent team throughout the competition of the the history of the competition. And Brisbane Heat, of course, uh, with the Bash Brothers, um, but none of those three teams, it, it's funny, none of them have fired at all. They've all, all had different problems. I, I guess the Strikers have still got a mathematical chance of sneaking in, but uh, they need everything to go their way. So, yeah, it's been very surprising. Yeah, I think like the Perth Scorchers have have looked, you know, they just have not performed in all areas. Whereas I think the Adelaide Strikers, if you look at it, their big batsmen just haven't performed in the right times. Like Jake Weatherald and Alex Carey have had quiet big bash seasons, and that's probably been the difference. They just haven't got enough top order runs. Well, I'll tell you, Carey's problem. It's it's the uh, he needs to work out his running between wickets. He's been run out four times this season including twice in the first over against the stri- against uh, the Sixers. And on all four times he's been run out, they've lost the game. Okay, Now, they've only lost seven games uh, all year, but four of them have been when he's run out. So that's, that's your problem to start with. And the Brisbane Heat, they've just been diabolical. Some of their batting performances have been shocking. You know, if, if you can get Lynn and McCullum out, there just doesn't seem to be much support down the order. It's, just, it's been a really disappointing competition for the Heat. Yeah, there's a few uh, issues going on there as well. Can't really put my finger on them, but there's already talk that, you know, Dan Vittori's position there uh, could be in jeopardy. Um, They just haven't gone well enough. You know, obviously the top, uh, the the Bash brothers haven't uh, fired all the time. When they do, they win. 
but uh, there's just not enough people contributing. So uh, might be some changes on the horizon there. Yeah, I think you're right about that. Victoria might be in real trouble. And and it just shows how hard it is to predict T20 cricket because the Scorchers and the Strikers in particular look like they're very strong squads. But if a few key players underperform, then it really pulls the team down. So the Scorchers have lost a few players uh, to Australia over over the summer, which has hurt them. Um, although they, you know, they had them back. They had um, Ash back, and uh, when they lost to the Thunder the other day, made uh, ninety six not out, and um, and still lost. So that's not uh, a completely mitigating excuse. No, no. But uh, you know, you've been closely watching the Sydney Thunder and the Sydney Sixers in particular, and and coming into the season, no one gave them a, a great chance of you know being in the top four and or winning the comp, and, and the the Sixers especially seem to have you know really got the best out of their squad. Sixers, uh, Sixers have been the story of the competition. Well, them and the Hurricanes are the two stories of the competition. Um, the Sixers have been fantastic. They don't really have a lot of superstars, but they just had so many great contributors. And their season's been so funny because at the first half of the season, they just couldn't get any runs out of their top four. They had the second worst power play record of any team in the competition. And somehow, they still managed to win. And then they had a huge block of games away from home because the SCG was being uh, occupied for the the test against India and then the one-day match there. So sort of three weeks, they were out of away from home for three weeks. And uh, when they went on the road trip, they were struggling a little bit. And they went terrific. They went terrific on the road. And then they've come back and they got a block of five games in a row. So they lost their first one when they came back home. And now they've just strung together three in a row and looking like world beaters, you know. So they've had three century partnerships in each of their last... Uh, their 300 partnerships in each of their last three matches. And they're, they're, they're the form team of the competition at the moment. It's still very tight. They're second, but only on run rate ahead of Melbourne Renegades. But... On form, they're as good as anyone. Yeah, Moses Enriquez, uh, Stephen O'Keefe, James Vince, Ben Dwarshus, these players who've, who've all had some international experience have really uh, led the way for the Sixers. And then you have, you know, the youngster Philippi and uh, you've got Lloyd Pope has been on the sideline and Menenti. I mean, the squads have really come to life. And, you know, it seems to have that sort of good mix of a few old heads, a few young heads and some good solid cricketers in the middle. Yeah, and they've just they've just managed to get the right contributions out of people at the right time. So, you know, like you take Joe Denley, who didn't really contribute much in his first six games. He was only playing half the season because he had to head over to England duties. But he came out in his last game, scored 76 not out, won him a game. Okay? Now, if everyone wins you a game, you're, you're, you're home and hose. And then his replacement, James Vince, comes in. Okay? And in his second and his third knocks, he puts together half centuries. So he's averaging 48, topping the averages so far. So guys like that, uh, Dan Hughes is the same, right? He's, he's scored more half centuries than anyone else for the Sixers this season. Three. Everyone's contributed. O'Keefe has been terrific. He's right up there on the top wicket takers um, for the season. Uh, you mentioned Menenti. The kid comes out on debut, gets man of the match. He hasn't got man of the match since, but he doesn't have to. The thing is that every game you've had someone step up and contribute. Jordan Silk in the first three or four games of the season was absolutely terrific. You know, just saved their bacon all the time when that top order was failing. 
So that, that's really been their key. That uh, They just had different contributors all the way through the season. Yeah, the one person we didn't mention there was Tom Curran uh, from England. He's been oh. exceptional with the bat and ball. Superstar. Could be the best player in the competition this season. He's been absolutely fantastic. 175 runs he scored, uh, batting down the order, averaging 35. And uh, wickets, ooh, I don't know how many he got. He's got 16 wickets, I think. So one of the top uh, in the entire competition. I think the only guys who've got more wickets from him, and he bowls at the death for sixes, uh, are Sean Abbott and uh, and uh, Stock O'Keefe. Uh, so they've got 18 and 17, respectively. Do you know when um, the sixes are scheduled to lose Curran and Vince to the England one-day side? Yeah. Well, Vince, Vince will stay for the duration unless he... So at the moment, he hasn't been called up to the England squad. Yep. He was he was in their squad in the middle of last year, uh, but has lost his place. So he isn't in there for the one-day squad. So he, he can play right through to the final. I spoke to Tom about this um, about a week ago. <clears throat> the original plan was that he would be leaving after the regular season, so would miss the playoff. But I think he's got, you know, he's having so much fun and he's enjoying himself. I think he's, he was sort of suggesting he might put in a phone call and see if he can stay on a little bit longer. But it's very, very tight with England's first game in the West Indies. So it's really England's call. And uh, there's no shortcuts from, from Sydney to the West Indies, so it's a long <laughs> trip. So I wouldn't count on him being here for the finals, but uh, what a huge boost it would be because he, he's just been terrific. Not only are his numbers good, but he's just a bloke who scores runs when they need them and gets wickets when they need them. Yeah, he's a real battler and he's a real fighter. He seems to really get into the contest. And you're right, if they were to lose him for the finals, it would be a bit of a hole in the lineup. Now, let's turn our attention to the Sydney Thunder. And they're an interesting team because, you know, they had Root and Butler who've done, who did pretty well as their first overseas players. But when they switched to Devsic and Jordan, they've done equally as well. So the Thunder have been, you know, quite consistent all summer without really being on fire. Yeah, look, Josh Butler was, was incredible. I mean, when he left, he was he was the leading run scorer in the competition and just couldn't seem to do any wrong. Joe Root, the, the players and the management had a huge rap on him because of the extra work he did around the team, working with some of the younger players. And Shane Watson said he was invaluable helping him on the field. In terms of batting, he really didn't do much. He had a high score of 26, just never really got going. So I'm not so sure he was such a big loss. He, he may well have you know, produced in the back end of the season, but he didn't get the chance. Uh, in terms of the, re- the replacement, yeah, Devchit's been really good so far. Didn't bowl. I don't think he bowled in the last game, but he got a wicket in his first over when he came out, and he's pretty explosive um, at the start of the innings there. So when he gets going, he's pretty good. But they, they've been a funny team because... The, 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 They've had a pretty up-and-down season, but they're so close to being a really good team. They've obviously had a little bit of bad luck. I mean, I dread to think that that blackout game is going to cost them, but it may because I think they have to they have to uh, manufacture another win to make up for that. That one point doesn't really help them. They got from that night. They really needed the two points. Their run rate's so good. If they got the two points, they'd be right in the mix. But, yeah, look, so, you know, Watto... Took a while to get going, but he knocked up uh, a big half century and then hit that terrific hundred uh, against the Brisbane Heat. And in their last game, Callum Ferguson produced probably the best innings um, anyone's had this season with that 113 not out. Um, yeah, it was off about 50 balls. It was unbelievable striking. Yeah. <laughs> 
I mean, if, if, if Ferguson, Watson and Farward Armoured with the ball sort of click, that could be a pretty formidable lineup come semi-finals time. But as you say, with Brisbane Heat out of the running, that one point really could cost them. Yeah, yeah. I, look, uh, in some ways it, it, it shouldn't because destiny is in their own hands. If they win all of their remaining games, that one point doesn't matter. Okay, But if they don't win all their remaining games and they've got arguably the hardest run of any team uh, in semi-final contention, then it possibly could. Mm. So you've got the Thunder really vying with the two Melbourne sides for a spot in the semis. I prefer the look of the Melbourne Stars on paper to the Renegades. I just think you can't go past some of the, the classy players like Maxwell and Zampa and, and Stoinis will come back for the Stars. I think the Stars could be another one to watch and they might edge out either the Renegades or the Thunder from the finals. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. again, it's uh, look, they've both got good lineups, and I agree with you. I think the Stars edge them, but a lot of it just depends on on how they go, and the, you know the competition is so tight that games you think they might win, they just don't get away with. The Stars have got their next; they got two of their final three games away from home. That's always tricky, and then their last game at home is going to be against the Sixers, which could they could either be battling for a place in the semi-finals or battling the Sixers to see who finishes second and gets a home semi-final. So. They've got some pressure games ahead of them, and we'll know a lot more about them in the next in the next week or so. Renegades, yeah, I mean, yeah, they've they've just been consistent all year, haven't they? And you know, they started off really well. I think they won their first two or three, and then they had a little bit of a lean trot, but uh, they're back going really well and almost surprising when you look at the ladder how high they uh, how high up they are yeah i think if you look at their lineup it's a, it doesn't it doesn't sort of have the same class that some of the other teams no but isn't that one of the things that we've seen this season you know like particularly when we look at the uh, the two sydney teams that the teams that have been the most successful are the teams that have got contributions from numerous players across the the lineup rather than just relied on one or two superstars yeah, you're right. Now, Julian, before I let you go, um, I, I know you've been overworking in America covering sport and travelling around the world. You're now back in Australia, and I'm interested in your impressions of the Big Bash because you haven't you know, seen it a lot the last few years, but you're now coming back, and there's a lot of speculation that it's too long and there's too many games. You know, What's your view of it? Well, I, I actually find it quite... Um, you're right, I was away uh, overseas for a long time, so I didn't the Big Bash didn't exist when I when I left. But I, I find it quite comical when people say it's too long. You know, I, I covered Major League Baseball where they, they play 162 regular season games um, each team, then playoffs. And also they have um, they have a big um, uh, pre-season as well. So uh, a two-month competition being too long, yeah, it uh, doesn't resonate with me. Um, I, I, think it's, I, I think the length has been fine. Um, and I think it's really building up into exciting final series. Uh, I, I guess the, 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 the thing is maybe there were a couple of times where where teams, because of the draw, didn't play. You know, we mentioned the Sixers earlier, didn't play at home for three weeks. I, that might have sort of lost a little momentum with um, with Sydney supporters. But I think otherwise, it's no, it, it's been fantastic. Yeah, and there's probably also just been a few too many games that haven't been competitive. We've seen a lot of teams like fall in a heap at times batting, which that can get a bit frustrating for the viewers, I think. Yeah, well, maybe they just were spoiled in the first uh, seasons of the competition. But 
you know, there still have been some great games this year. We've seen some of the best, I think, the second greatest run chase in, in uh, Big Bash history this year when the Hurricanes um, beat the Thunder in Hobart. Um, we've seen some great run chases from the Sixers. We've seen some new young guys emerge. Um, Josh Felipe was, you know, right out of the box that knock. He, he had against the Hurricanes uh, a week or so ago. Terrific bowling performances, some unbelievable catches. I think it's had everything. Well, there you go. I'm a big fan too. And I guess, you know, you, you mentioned Major League Baseball. I know that one thing they do really well is they, they really work on the match day experience because they know with, you know, 81 home games per team, it's a bit of a battle to get fans in. So they really work on the match day experience. So I guess that's something that the Big Bash could work on is just try and have a few more incentives with better food and better entertainment at the ground. Yeah, I mean, some of them have been really good though. You know, varies from venue to venue and really it's generated by the number of people in the stadium. I mean, you can't sort of manufacture atmosphere if there's not enough people. But some of the stadiums and the attendances have been fantastic. You know, Adelaide Oval's um, excellent. Brisbane Heat, the game I went up there for which got blacked out was terrific and that's the one thing I think where daylight with not having daylight savings is a, is a good thing because at the halftime interval their stadium is black you know at night has, has fallen so they can put on real fireworks there um, it looks good but I think the best ground so far is, is um, old Bell Reef uh, wow. down in Hobart you know it's terrific it's a small ground but the atmosphere there is electric. And, you know, you've got to remember, Tasmania is, doesn't have a lot of teams in, in the national competitions here. And uh, so everyone is really, really behind the Hurricanes. And why wouldn't you be? Because they're the most exciting team in the competition this year. I know we talked about a lot of the others, but they have been they have been the benchmark all season. Um, they're four points clear of the competition as it stands, unless there's some sort of crazy collapse and all sorts of other results go against them they're still going to finish the regular season in first place which gives them the home field advantage for the semi and the final if they get it and uh, and if they do they deserve it because they've been terrific you know i, I really think the Sixers are coming home like a, a perfect melbourne cup preparation they've timed it <laughs> timed everything to perfection but you know week in week out the best team so far has been the hurricanes they're fantastic to watch they are indeed, and uh, it's going to be a really exciting conclusion to the Big Bash. Well, Julian, oh, thanks so much. So, thanks so much for making your debut on the podcast. Great to have you on. <laughs> Pleasure. And uh, <laughs> anytime. We'll catch up again soon. Take care. Lovely, thank you. Great stuff there from Julian Linden, and you can keep up with all his work at the dailytelegraph.com.au. All right, coming up in a moment, Jared Kimber from the West Indies. But first, I just want to remind you all that if you have a moment, please rate or review the podcast on whatever app you listen to the show on. And you can email me on auscricketpod, that's A-U-S cricketpod at gmail.com. If you've got any uh, questions or comments about the podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Thanks to the people that have gone on and left reviews in the last week. It's much appreciated. Okay, coming up after the break, Jared Kimber. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. And now joining me on the line from the West Indies is cricket journalist Jared Kimber, who's covering the England v West Indies series. Hi, Jared. Welcome back to the podcast. How are you? Yeah, not too bad at all. So, look, I thought it was a good time. Australia's had a miserable summer. I was sort of devoid of hope. And then, you know, I saw over in the West Indies, 
England get bowled out for 77, get smashed by the West Indies, and all of a sudden I felt better. What's, what happened in that first test, I guess? Yeah, it's quite interesting. Everyone's focusing on the 77 all out because it sounds really dramatic. But realistically, Kiwa Roach bowled incredible and there's some good backup support from Alzari Joseph and Shannon Gabriel. But realistically, oh, and Jason Holder. But realistically, I think England were probably worse in the second innings when they made over 200. Uh, they lost eight wickets to Roston Chase on perhaps the flattest, uh, what were we, three and a half, four, fourth day pitch of all time. So England sort of collapsed twice, realistically, in that test. It's just the first one grabbed attention because um, there were fast bowlers involved. Very good news to hear. So, I mean, looking at that test match, it seemed like it was a sort of a bowler's wicket at the sort of beginning of the game. And then we saw Jason Holder bat through the whole day with Dowrich and, and not lose a wicket. But just... Sort of tell me a little bit about Jason Holder because he made that brilliant double century and I was looking at his record. I mean, he's got a very good bowling average and a very handy batting average. So he's a sort of very good all-round cricketer. Yeah, he basically looks like a player who's probably, if you watch him play, he doesn't look like he's good enough as a batsman or a bowler in test level. But um, he's a very clever cricketer and, you know, being six foot 100, whatever he is, I mean, he's a very tall man. Uh, it makes it very hard for players to face him. So he's been very good with the ball. He's been nipping it around a little bit. And as a batsman, he's got a really good eye and a really solid technique. And once he started hitting out, uh, the ball went everywhere. It, certainly the pitch was a lot harder early on in the test than it was later on. But he made, you know, well, I mean, him and Dowrich basically put on more than I think um, than uh, England put on all together so it shows how well Holder batted really and uh, there's a couple of balls he just hit out of the stadium he's an inc- incredible hitter of the uh, cricket ball so he, he's one of, he looks like there's parts of him almost looks like a club cricketer he bowls about 125 k's an hour and bats at eight but um, he's very talented and uh, he thinks about his game a lot and what was the feeling like in the West Indies about this victory you know it's it's been a pretty lean uh, decade for the West Indies but I guess how, how was this victory uh, received no, it was huge. I mean, they were quite excited. Sadly, the crowds didn't come in. I think even it was incredible. England needed over 600. There was still a, you know, a degree of nervousness amongst West Indian fans. But um, essentially, uh, they were over the moon, especially like it was fast bowlers as well. I mean, that's what they love, isn't it? You know, they didn't get as excited about Roston Chase getting getting wickets with a bunch of straight balls. But the fast bowlers, especially when England were hopping around, I mean, that that's what they like. So I think maybe late on the fourth day, uh, there was a lot of Bayesians came in. Um, and there's certainly been a bit more hype for the rest of the series since then because of that. And, and look, you know, this, they picked, what, four, four seam bowlers, and the fastest bowler they've got, O'Shane Thomas, hasn't even bowled yet. He, he gets about 95 miles an hour, O'Shane Thomas, and swings it. So I think they're quite excited at the moment at what, what could happen. And would you say the West Indies bowling was sort of hostile and reminiscent of the past? Uh, yeah, it was quite interesting because there was a lot of talk about the pace of the bowlers, but Kemar Roach isn't that much quicker than James Anderson, really, and, and Jason Holder's probably even slower than Sam Curran, but Shannon Gabriel is quick, and Kemar Roach bowled a really good spell. I thought I thought it was more skillful than, than speed, but Alzari Joseph was the other bowler as well, and he was bowling you know around 90 miles an hour as well, but when, when Kemar Roach bowled a short ball, it was very good, and when Shannon Gabriel or, or, or Joseph bowled a short ball, it was very quick. So there was certainly, um, remember a couple of years ago, you had guys like Tino Best and Fidel Edwards and um, some of the other guys. They were, they were quite quick, but they were short. Suddenly they've got quite quick bowlers who are quite tall, and there's a bunch of them. As I said, you've got Shane Thomas, who's also in the squad. You've got guys like Odeon Smith, who's 20, who bowls over 90 miles an hour at the moment. They've got a lot of options when it comes to pace. 
Well, that's good to hear it um, augurs well for the future. What about England, though? So um, Australia's about to play Sri Lanka in a test match, and then Australia's next test match is against England uh, in the Ashes. So uh, really the focus is starting to be on how both teams are looking ahead of the Ashes. And England seem to have a similar problem with Australia, that they don't have a solid top order. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about how England are playing total cricket and they're playing, you know... Six, seven, eight, all-rounders. I mean, Ben Folks batted at eight last game as, a, as essentially a specialist wicketkeeper. And the reason that they're doing that is because they don't have a one, two, and three. I mean, Rory Burns might be able to do the job. My guess is that best may be moved from three by the next test and probably bat in the middle order. So they're not exactly... You know, there's just no opening batsman coming through. It's the same in county cricket. And Alistair Cook uh, was probably under less pressure for a while there just because there wasn't anyone else coming through. So Rory Burns, I think, is the best of the lot. He's in the team at the moment. My guess is that Jennings, who I think averages about 15 or 16 against pace bowling, is not going to be around by the action. Who knows who's going to be number three? I think Denley is a chance of maybe playing uh, one or two tests throughout the rest of the series, but I can't see him as a test match number three either. So what they've got is in Bairstow, Butler, Folks, Moen Alley, Stokes, they basically have a bunch of guys who can bat six or seven um, who are really top quality players at six or seven. What they don't have is two or three incredible players at the top of the order. So they'll be hoping that Rory Burns comes good or that Joe Root goes up the order. Uh, but other than that, they're, they're, they've got a lot of talented players. They just don't probably have a talented 11 at the moment, which means that when they're good and all their all-rounders come good, they look incredible. But when they don't come good, um, they you know they lose a bunch of quick wickets and everyone's under pressure, which is what happened um, in the first innings here. It sounds a bit like Australia's dilemma that the top order's really in all sorts and uh, the lower order's a bit stronger. I did notice that uh, James Anderson took six for 40, roughly, in the West Indies' first innings. I mean, the guy's 37 now, I think, and he still seems to be bowling as well as ever. Yeah, look, Anderson bowled beautifully, but I will say this, he did look really stiff in the the second innings. Um, He didn't bowl as much in the second innings, and I I think that's just because, you know, uh, he still has the skills, and he's still a very good bowler, and also the Duke's ball was being bowled, used by the West Indies, which is a huge advantage to him, but I think in the second innings, he did look a bit rough, and I think that makes sense. He he, he bowled a lot in the first innings, so they're going to have to be careful with him. I think the difference between England and Australia is that I think Australia has weaknesses right throughout their lineup, and the bowlers haven't quite clicked of recent times, whereas England um, have the ability to, you know, bat Sam Curran at nine. Now, Sam Curran might eventually be a number six or a number seven in Test Match Cricket. He's that talented with the bat. So they have this, this incredible all-round skill throughout their team, whereas Australia, uh, you know, is still very much batting and bowling without four, four options with the ball and six, seven options with a bat. So there's a difference between those two teams. But realistically, there's not much between the two sides. But obviously the Ashes are going to be played in England and Anderson is incredible with that Duke's ball. Anderson's offsider, Stuart Broad, was left out of the first test this series. Do you think that's a sign of things to come that he's sort of drifting to the outer or was it just a sort of um, a selection due to the conditions? I think they made a mistake. They, they didn't play him in all the tests in Sri Lanka either. Um, they played the extra spinner. They had three spinners at times in Sri Lanka. And I think what happened was they misread the pitch. I mean, have a look. The West Indies went in with 14 bowlers and a part-time spinner, and England went in with two front-line spinners. 
So there's a mistake there, isn't there, in the selection? And whoever made that selection certainly stuffed up. I mean, I think if you looked at the pitch of recent times, it was going to be seam friendly. And I talked to Jason Holder in an interview before the game, and he said that he thought the pitch would play as it had in the previous couple of first-class games, which meant that it was going to be hard to get people out, which, which it was at times on that pitch. But if you put pressure on with seam bowling, you'd be able to get through them, and eventually it would be up and down, which would mean that seam bowlers would come to the fore. Well, England... You know, Sam Curran is probably a fourth-slash-fifth pick seamer in a team. And Ben Stokes ended up bowling, I think, the second most overs he's ever bowled in a test match. And that was all because that they made a mistake in not picking Broad. Realistically, they had three wicketkeepers in their side. Ben Folks was batting at eight. So Broad could have played ahead of, uh, of Folks, and they would have been just as good a side with a better... or just as good a batting side with a better bowler. So um, I, I think they just made an error there, really. And I think I would expect Broad to play in the next test. I'd expect, actually probably for them to play a couple of seamers extra in the next test. So in all likelihood, Broad may be back for the Ashes, barring injury. So we'll have the sort of 8 for 15 nightmares swirling around. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, he's not finished. He looked, He's looked pretty good when I've seen him bowl. I thought he bowled a couple of really good spells in, in Sri Lanka when I was over there as well. So he's still a quality bowler. You know, so the Ashes, you could see Broad and Wokes back. But Broad and Wokes are not perfectly suited to all conditions. So I think England has such a strong bowling squad that they can sort of bring players in and out. And I think that's the way they're looking at the team at the moment. And what sort of effect do you think the fact that the Ashes are being played late summer, August, September, will have on the series? Um, look, I mean, it's, it's hard to tell at the moment. If you, if you play in the middle of some of the pitches, you're a little bit quicker. So that suits Australia a little bit more, sort of the June-July period. I think August, September maybe slows down a little bit more and helps seam bowling. So generally that would help England. But if they've got broad and woke, so those guys are going to want a little bit of pace on the pitch as well. But, but realistically, I think in general, that the height of summer usually helps quick bowlers a little bit at ball. Yeah, and I was also thinking that if England have a good 50-over World Cup and, you know, make the final or the semi-finals, that could suck a bit of the energy out of the squad for the Ashes. Do, do you think that could happen? Or... Well, it could happen to either team, I suppose. Australia could have a World Cup, good World Cup as well. England played a lot of cricket recently. I think Australia might have a little bit more of a break than them. But... I, you know, when it comes down to it, there's, you know, these are professional athletes and they're going to have to try and get up. If, if England or Australia won the World Cup, I would think that might affect them in the Ashes, to be fair. They'd have to play more games and also there's the emotional eye. But, you know, the Ashes is still the Ashes, isn't it? And uh, you, you would think both teams will be able to get up for that. I'm not sure how Cricket Australia ever agreed to this schedule to play the World Cup and the Ashes back-to-back in England. I mean, it's, it's, it's diabolical. You know, Australia can't win both, you would think. Well, a couple of years ago, we had the World T20 and the Ashes back-to-back as well. Realistically, I don't see how it's any different for Australia than it is for England. I mean, uh, we played India, what, in four tests in 2011? Or 2015, sorry, at home. And then we went and won the World Cup. So, realistically, it's... It's all possible now. There's too much cricket, and we have to fit it in one way or another. If Australia are in good form in the World Cup, there's no, you know, I think they're a good enough team to win it. I think they're a slightly better one-day teams at the moment, but they're certainly a good enough team if everything clicks to win the World Cup. So you you would expect them to to give it a good run, realistically. And and I suppose the teams are a little bit more, uh, you know, segregated than they have been in the past as well. 
That's true. Um, now, you're an Australian cricket journalist living in London. Are you married to an English woman or did you just emigrate there? Uh, I'm married to an English woman. Well, uh, English Sri woman, yeah. I'm married to an English woman as well. So I just want to know what it's been like for you living in England after the sandpaper fiasco. Is it constant reminders and constant jokes? Uh, yeah, it, it gets mentioned a lot, to be fair. I, I think there's, I think you have to remember that, like, you know, we, we, the way that it would work for an Englishman working in Australia, it's a similar thing. Like, whatever the most ridiculous recent thing that one country has done, the other country will use to take the piss out of. So it's not exactly, it doesn't really matter what it is at a certain point. It doesn't matter if it's Australia changing prime ministers every five minutes or it's England with Brexit um, or it's Boris Johnson or whatever it is. Like, everyone's always using that sort of thing. So it's not like sandpaper's made it any worse. It just makes it more consistent. That's right. And, and, you know, what have you made of Australia's summer? You know, you've got some distance. I actually haven't seen you in Australia this summer around the ground, so I'm not sure if you've been here. What, what have you made of Australia's sort of performance and just general cultural review that's gone on right throughout this summer? Well, actually, I've, I've been working from London on the Big Bash. I've been working with the Melbourne Stars. So I haven't been out. I've actually been in the UK or now in the West Indies working for the Stars. So... From a distance, I mean, a lot of this was inevitable. We, we push and we push and we push and eventually people are going to take it the wrong way and do something like sandpaper. And, uh, I, you know, I th- I've been writing about this sort of stuff for years. We, we have always been arrogant and we play, you know, club cricket and shield cricket in a very aggressive way and it's bound to occasionally boil over. And realistically, this whole nonsense that we need to be aggressive and arrogant to win. No, we don't. We were the best test team in the world before we were arrogant and aggressive. We were the best test team in the world for 50 or 60 years, realistically. And we did that by just being better at cricket than everyone else. This whole nonsense about mental disintegration and sledging and uh, giving verbals, it's just... To me, it's always been nonsense. We are better because we are better at cricket and we play a different brand of cricket to everyone else. Having to be arrogant and having to cheat and having to sledge, I, I've never seen the need for that in Australian cricket. And perhaps now that we've been caught out with something like this, maybe things will change. But uh, I won't hold my breath. <laughs> I think there's been a real spotlight um, shined on Cricket Australia and, and the part it's played in developing the culture. And I, I think we are seeing a subtle shift in their uh, treatment of others and, and stuff. So maybe the sort of arrogance that you, you will be eroded slightly. Well, 2010-11 Ashes, I remember now, Paul Marsh, Rod Marsh's son was the head of the, the player union, and he basically came out and said the reason they won at the Wacker was because they, they were sledging again. The reason we won at the Wacker, from memory, was Ryan Harris and Mitchell Johnson bowling incredibly. Um, it's just nonsense. We sledge more when we win. So I think that uh, we'll, if we lose a couple of series and then we win one, we'll start sledging again and everyone will go, see, that's why we won, uh, which is I don't think how things work. But, uh, you know, I can't change Australian culture just being a cricket writer. I, I do my best, mate, but I just can't change it. <laughs> Look, I'm doing my best too. Um, well, you just mentioned that you're working for the Melbourne Stars. Uh, what have you been doing for them? Basically, they're anal- uh, doing analysis for them. So uh, writing up reports on games and uh, giving them ideas on tactics and doing uh, previews and things like that for them. So it's good fun. I, I did a similar thing with St. Lucia Stars um, in the CPL last year, and I've got some other jobs lined up. So, um, yeah, just data analysis and also just research. You know, the, the problem with most T20 franchises is that coaches don't really have time to sit in front of a laptop for six hours and find out stuff about the opposition or, the, or their own team. 
So uh, that's kind of uh, what I've been doing in cricket over the last six to 12 months. And have you been working with Stephen Fleming and Trent Woodhill from the Melbourne Stars? Yeah, I worked directly with Trent and then Trent sort of um, takes what I have and forwards it to the coaches and they come back with questions when they have questions and uh, you know, occasionally I talk on the phone with them as well and um, just, just trying to just trying to help them as much as anything. As I said, they're busy with, with the day-to-day running of, co- of coaching. So, you know, I worked with Brad Hodge when I was at Solution as well, and it's a similar thing. When Brad's running a coaching session or a training session or even the, the warm-up of a game, he can't really watch what's going on. So it helps for, to have someone who's not involved in that to go, you know what, I don't think we were professional enough or we didn't warm up correctly or we didn't think about the right things with the opposition. You know, just simple things like that that... I think we take for granted that cricket teams do, but sometimes there just isn't someone in that role. So that seems to be my role at the moment in, in cricket. Yeah, it's very interesting. There's been a lot of discussion, especially in the last week, about the length of the Big Bash being too long, maybe too many games, and the standard being down this year. What's your analysis sort of thrown up? Yeah, I think the standard is definitely down. I, I don't know how much of that is just the pictures, to be fair, as well, um, which I, I think um, was mentioned by the chairman um, or, or the CEO. Yeah, I can't remember. Was... One of them mentioned that about the pictures, which I think is fair. The whole—I find it quite interesting—the whole BPL thing because they should have seen that coming and they didn't. But also, in general, the way that that I look at it is the, the Big Bash has never really been a star-driven competition. I know that occasionally we've had Gale and Russell and and Pollard, and but but realistically, we also had Run and David and you know Adil Rashid and uh, Yasser Arafat and mm. Tim Preston. They're hardly stars, mm. you know. They're good cricketers, but they're hardly stars. Um, I think that if it is. If the average score this year was 175, uh, and it is down. I, I haven't checked the numbers recently, but the last time I had a look, the, the number of, of runs was certainly down. But it, I think if the average scores were back up again, I don't think we'd be talking about the fact that you know Andre Russell is uh, is off playing in another league. But the fact that no one's making any runs, I think it just makes it a bit starker. But look, the league probably is a little bit too long. And also, I think that we're one of the few leagues in the world that has so few international players in a squad, I think that, well, especially especially from an analyst point of view, but I think if you're looking at the talent, if you put an extra eight international quality players into this league at the moment, it would step it up. The same way it would step it up if all the test and one-day players were available. You know, the Stars is a perfect example. The Stars lost four players when the one-dayers were going, and they didn't win a game. And that's because the squads aren't that deep when you have the extra two teams, the eight teams rather than six. And then also, the overseas players can't really cover that that gap. And, you know, it's not just the Stars that struggled. We, we saw a couple of years ago, the, uh, sorry, last year, the Scorchers um, struggled when they lost a bunch of players to the, uh, you know, to the international setup. So perhaps if we had a third international, that might change things a little bit, or if we had the availability of the, of the Australian players. But uh, in the short term, it looks like neither of those things are going to happen. And instead, what they're going to do is pay two international players slightly more money, which I'm not sure is going to change the quality of the Big Bash as much. But I could be wrong. No, I think you're right. I think they definitely need to make all Australian international players available because how can you expect people to treat the competition with 
the sort of reverence that you want if you don't make your best players available. And the other thing is, I think there was a lack of foresight from Cricket Australia that, you know, if you increase it to 14 games per team, you need more draw cards. So they needed to sort of think, okay, we need the stars, a few stars out here in the league. So someone will go, yeah, I want to go and see AB De Villiers bat or something like that. Yeah, I mean, part of the problem is that, and we don't talk about this much, but the Bangladesh Premier League is doing great. It makes a lot of money. I think it's got the second highest revenue when it comes to advertising. Wow. Um, and TV right deals is going to go through the de- uh, roof. Also, the guys who own teams over there, so, so the, having worked in a, in a league structure, big bash-wise, and our private sort of league structure in the CPL, you know, I can kind of say to my owner in the CPL, we need this guy. And he can go out and, and sort of pay the extra money and find a way and get other endorsement deals and these sorts of things even within. And sometimes I'm not sure all the teams in the CPL are quite living up to their salary cap, to be fair. And the Big, ba- and the big Bash can't do that. And the Bangladesh Premier League could. And I think the Bangladesh Premier League looked and said, our main opposition is the Big Bash. Everyone go out and, and pay a lot of money for the star, uh, you know, for the big, big name players. And they certainly did that. And they've done great guns. A.B. De Villiers doesn't play in the Caribbean Premier League. He doesn't play in the Blast in the UK. And he doesn't play in the Big Bash, but he's playing the BPL. That tells you, A, how much money is involved and how well the league is doing at the moment. Yep, I agree. And it, look, it's getting a lot of discussion over here. Uh, I think the Melbourne Stars are pretty well placed now heading into the sort of back end of the competition. I've got them as a sort of tip for certainly making the semis and maybe uh, they could lift their first ever Big Bash title. Yeah, I mean, look, with the way that Marcus Stoinis is playing, uh, we're, we're in a very good position. Uh, and I think we have a very good squad as well. And uh, O'Connell, the leg spinner, has come through for us at a very important time as well. But there's, there's, I think you basically got Hobart, who have a ridiculous list. Hobart and Perth have the two best lists, and weirdly, Perth are on the bottom and Hobart are massively clear on top. Uh, we don't have as much strength, but you know we haven't got much out of Maxwell yet, and we know that he's probably due a couple of innings, and even Dwayne Bravo hasn't done much for the bat, although he's been incredible with the ball. So I think we can get slightly better. Essentially, with T20 tournaments, all you have to do is make the finals. You make the finals, and anything can happen. And at the moment, we're in a good position to do that. But I think there's probably... Maybe the strikers aside, I think the Thunder, the Sixers, and the two, two Melbourne sides are all in a good position to make the finals. It probably just depends a little bit, uh, you know, on how everything lands in the last couple of games. But uh, we, 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 I think, you know, we've won a couple of games in a row, and we're looking quite good. So hopefully that continues. Yeah, I think from all those teams, the Sydney Thunder are the probably won't the one that could get uh, miss the finals at the end. Well, Jared, thank you so much for your time coming on the podcast. So you're in uh, Antigua, did you say? I'm in Antigua, yeah. You could probably just gently in the background hear the band playing um, in, in our restaurant. Antigua is, is quite lovely if you ever get the chance. My first time over here, actually. And uh, so far, really enjoying it. And uh, are you enjoying commentating for Talk Sport? Yeah, it's been great fun. Obviously, I, I did a little bit of BBC and Test Match Sofa over the years, and then um, uh, ABC as well. Talk Sport's a little bit different uh, again, and but I, I think they seem to be doing quite well. And uh, I did the Sri Lanka tour, and uh, no, it's good. We've got a lot of commentators who haven't been on air a lot before talking about cricket. So guys like Darren Goff, who's a big broadcaster in the UK, but usually on sports radio, so he's getting his first chance and. Uh, uh, commentating with Matt Pryor and Steve Harmison and, and Gareth Batty, 
who's not a big name cricketer, but has been brilliant. He's still playing for Surrey. So when he's available, he comes over, and uh, it's been a lot of fun. Well, it's a gig I'm sure many would want. Have a great time in the West Indies, and uh, thanks for all your fantastic insights. No problems. Cheers, mate. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this edition of Cricket Unfiltered. I've been your host, Andrew Mensel. You've been listening to the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. And uh, next episode, I'll be in Canberra at the Test versus Sri Lanka. So stay tuned for that. (laughs) 